Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of our podcast session on humanitarian crisis and the impact of COVID-19 in the global south. All of us know how devastating the year 2020 was for the entire world. The pandemic shook all of us, leaving everything upside down, locked up everyone inside their house and showed us what a virus can do to the world. We witnessed people losing their lives, international borders getting closed, trade getting disrupted, economies crashing, stockpiling of vaccines and whatnot. But did the pandemic affect all the countries in the similar way? Not at all. The COVID-19 has severely affected the economies in the global south because of multiple lockdowns, global slowdown, poor healthcare facilities and lack of resources. Today, we have with us Professor Ravi Thapar, who would be talking to us more about the global divide and the impacts of COVID-19 in the global south. He is a lawyer diplomat who has served as India's envoy in many countries, including Lebanon and New Zealand. He has served in multiple roles in his 36 years of professional career and has successfully espoused economic and commercial ties between India and many other countries. Currently, he is serving as a professor in international affairs and law and also as the executive dean at Jindal School of International Affairs. It is a great honor for us to have with you with us today, you professor, and we welcome you to today's session. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, Ms. Kalyani and uh, Mr. Aryan for having me on this podcast. Indeed, I completely resonate with your sentiments. And of course, this is the prevalent, you know, uh, message all over COVID-19 has been very, very devastating for the entire uh, world and especially those countries which are what we call, uh, you know, the global south. And uh, very, very, very roughly, I think it has been estimated by international authorities that the world GDP took a hit of about $14 trillion during this uh, time. And uh, naturally, $14 trillion is extremely valuable because uh, it is needed very, very urgently for, you know, the developmental objectives which are being so diligently addressed or which are the aspirations of the Global South, <clears throat> the infrastructure, the prosperity, uh, sometimes even basic needs like hunger, uh, of course, providing employment, better education, better health care, and complying with the not-too-distant climate change objectives, objectives which have been outlined by the world in order not to go beyond the you know, benchmark of about 1.52 degrees Celsius by 2030 to make sure that global warming is under control. So with this kind of kaleidoscope of uh, objectives, which is in front, <clears throat> the challenges have uh, are daunting. And uh, even before the COVID, things were not very, very uh, rosy. Uh, as we know, as many of us have studied, uh, the global uh, international monetary and financial architecture has uh, not really been working to the great advantage of the developing countries. And uh, writers like uh, Professor Jason Heichel, Thomas Piketty, who is uh, you know, managing the World Inequality Secretariat at Paris and which is bringing out the World Inequality Report, they have all highlighted how 
uh, in the past uh, decades, uh, you know, the multilateral agencies like the IMF, World Bank, which theoretically are supposed to uh, be the harbinger of a system which will become, which will bring prosperity and development to the uh, to the south. Well, it's not been working the way it should be. Basically, uh, the global divide, economic divide, <clears throat> although it is slightly less than what it was in the 80s, it still continues to be quite daunting. Uh, the top 10% of the world's richest uh, segment walks away, with, walks away with about 50% of the global GDP. And uh, the bottommost, uh, you know, uh, section, 50% of the world community is able to just get harness about 8.5% of the GDP. And uh, you have people who have been, uh, you know, in terms of vaccines uh, also, it has been estimated by uh, international agencies that uh, while the G20 countries were able to manage vaccines, for themselves, for their population, uh, very approximately the amount of vaccine supplies which they got was about 15 to 20 times more than those, uh, you know, in uh, poorer countries, and about three times more more than than the ordinary, uh, you know, segment uh, of uh, the ordinary uh, countries, which were which were little much, which were better than the poor and deprived countries. So <clears throat> there is a great divide. There's a divide of opportunity. Uh, the problem is that multilateral processes, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, they have, of course, uh, some of the best economists in the world. But the apprehension and uh, the suspicion which has been voiced by uh, people, Professor Jason Heichel, who has written uh, about it, The Divide is his book, and uh, also by Thomas Piketty and also the Oxfam, uh, Oxfam Inequality Report of 21-22. The, the problem is that uh, uh, it is felt that the processes which they have diagnosed, the remedies which they are, you know, identifying for developing countries, it doesn't really prepare them for a path or a trajectory which will launch them into a new orbit. What I'm trying to say is that uh, they are, of course, sanctioned loans. They are given uh, assistance, bilateral, multilateral assistance. But unfortunately, the remedies which are prescribed concurrently with the assistance, we call them structural adjustment programs. Those structural adjustment programs are not really geared to bringing the economies out of the labyrinth which they seem to be to seem to have landed themselves in and you know unless the country in question has the flexibility or at least some liberty in being able to localize and apply that assistance to its particular needs for example it has certain strengths in the economy maybe it is strong in the services sector Maybe it has some uh, natural resources, you know, which could, if given the opportunity, prepare or at least uh, facilitate its journey towards industrialization. 
Well, what happens is that there is a one fix, one remedy fixes it all approach. And for most countries, there are standard, you know, uh, kind of uh, programs and remedies which are prescribed by the IMF and the World Bank. So what happens is rather than sharpening or honing the potential of uh, recipient countries in the South, it blunts that potential. They are forced to apply the structural adjustment programs. And as a result, they just keep getting into a state of indebtedness. They are not really able to progress into situations where they will not only be able to pay back the loans, but also generate enough revenues and enough wealth and prosperity for developing their own infrastructure and bringing prosperity for the nations, for their nations. Now, this has been going on in the last few decades. And this is irrespective of COVID. Uh, COVID, of course, has worsened it further because with COVID came, you know, the need, the urgent need to beef up the healthcare sector. There are infrastructural issues in healthcare, including, for example, in our country, in India, too, we had a crisis last year in terms of, you know, more hospitals being required to give oxygen uh, to the patients, COVID-19 patients. So this kind of, these kind of issues have made the crisis, which is already there, these conditions which are already there even more critical. What, we, what it means, therefore, is that uh, <clears throat> the COVID-19 uh, scenario, uh, besides the infrastructure in healthcare, it also, of course, requires more vaccines, which again requires you know, expenditure and money, because unfortunately, uh, the countries of the North some of the multinational, you know, pharmaceutical corporations, they did not agree to uh, licensing uh, and foregoing the IPR and the royalties. So the vaccines were very expensive. And despite the demand that this be done because of the world emergency, it was not done. And uh, we've also, of course, had situations where some of the developed, nation, developed nations preferred to, you know, hoard very large supplies of vaccine vaccines for COVID for their population, much in anticipation of the future, whereas people in Africa or some of these developing other developing countries did not even have opportunity for getting the first um, shot of uh, COVID vaccination. So we've had these glaring inequalities, which, uh, which have made the situation uh, quite tense and difficult. Uh, so those are some of my preliminary observations, and uh, I would uh, like to respond to, uh, we can pursue this conversation further as you would like it to proceed. Kalyani. Uh, yes, Professor. So my first question would be, uh, how huge do you think uh, the difficulty level for the Global South countries would be in, in their journey to achieving the SDGs? You know, approximately, I mean, tangibly speaking, uh, the first major step was, of course, in 2000, when we, had the def when we had the definition of Millennium Development Goals, MDGs, by the UN agencies. But then uh, it was felt that it was not robust enough. And then there was reassessment. And then we, they came up with another definition, which is called the Sustainable Development Goals, which you are asking and inquiring about. And uh, this was in 2015. Uh, approximately, you know, uh, these SDGs uh, and, of course, poverty, removal of poverty, hunger, 
basic uh, conditions relating to education and infrastructure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, they are all uh, reflected in the 17 SDGs, and they are supposed to be achieved by 2030. But uh, uh, what the UN has estimated that uh, even for very basic needs like poverty, uh, you know, uh, education, infrastructure, etc., etc., approximately 3.3 to 4.5 trillion dollars is to be spent uh, by developing countries every year. And uh, this needs to be done every year on a regular basis till 2030. And uh, the way we are going, I don't think I don't see that happening. So because, uh, you know, um, even on uh, just on infrastructure, uh, uh, the IMF has est estimated that $1.3 trillion is needed for infrastructure and $1.3 trillion is needed for health and education by developing and low-income countries. So uh, this, is, this is a pretty daunting uh, figure for them to marshal. And uh, the way the COVID-19 has depleted the world resources, uh, it doesn't seem to be, you know, uh, you know programmed uh, uh, for 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 energizing or operationalizing for COVID-related, uh, you know, for SDGs. So the uh, the challenge, therefore, I think, uh, has become much worse. And uh, the point is that uh, uh, it is also being said that uh, you know the Oxfam, for example, has uh, estimated that approximately half a billion people. Uh, are likely to have been pulled back, pushed back rather, uh, into poverty situation because of COVID. Uh, it has been estimated separately by the UNESCO that uh, about 1.25 billion students were affected by lockdown, and uh, which was there during COVID, and that as many as 86% of the primary school education uh, sector uh, in developing countries, in poor countries, did not have access to digital education, etc., and had to. Therefore, there was no education. So, uh, separately, you know, the ILO has estimated, the International Labour Organization has estimated that uh, almost 1.6 billion of the world's uh, employed population, uh, you know, is in the informal sector of the economy. Now, that means that it is not structured, it is not contractual uh, services, therefore, they are, uh, they are estimated to have lost their jobs and, uh, or they were almost on the verge of losing jobs. So that is a precarious situation, uh, I think, and uh, uh, it does not, therefore, seem very good uh, right now, as things are, that uh, there will be enough resources because giving those, getting those, uh, taking care of those immense, uh, daunting, you know, uh, numerals, uh, the figures which have been estimated by agencies uh, and respect, respected multilateral entities, the way the resources have been dented into uh, during the COVID and the way the you know economic financial architecture has been unfolding as has been commented upon in my initial remarks and as has been reviewed and critically analyzed by commentators like thomas piketty jason heichel etc it's not 
programmed in a very promising direction. It will be very, very fortuitous, extremely lucky if everything is stable, everyone is, you know, productively occupied and engaged and the sectors of various economics, you know, economic fields and sectors are robust and there is good trade and business all over. I think then only uh, there is our, there is there are good chances of actually achieving these SDGs substantially by 2030. And uh, as things are, you know, it is also uh, there's another fault line which has which has been identified that during the last few decades, uh, this is what world economists are saying. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, the the international economic or trade model which has been perpetuated, uh, there has been wealth which has been generated. Uh, it would be wrong to say that wealth has not been created. But unfortunately, that wealth has not accrued necessarily to the public sector or to the governments. It is the private sector, maybe the multinationals or certain high net worth individuals in different countries in the world the big fish as it were which have become bigger and bigger and a lot of wealth has therefore moved from the government to the private sector now while that gives flexibility uh, because the private sector of course can invest in various projects etc etc the private sector is not really geared towards welfare measures so things which are required by the society and the population of a country as a whole it's not mandated that or it's not compulsory that these uh, private sector bodies and corporations will invest in those projects. They will typically invest in those projects and those business initiatives and ventures either in the country or abroad, which will get them more revenues, which will get them more business because that is the model on which they are based. So this is an additional fault line which has been identified. So not only is there a shrinking of resources available for SDGs, there is of course also inflation, you know, costs of goods and services has been going up. There's also the fact that uh, there is, and there's, there's the, the multilateral dispersal agencies, IMF, World Bank, etc. It's not being, you know, uh, really bringing in too many opportunities. That's also there. Then the COVID-19 has hit uh, the world economy. And now, of course, the latest uh, which we have is the war which is going on in East Europe. So and the sanctions which have taken place that only worsens the situation because effectively one part of the world is being cut off. If the world economy, which is so interconnected, interdependent as we are today, because what has seamless uh, connectivity to the Internet, uh, the social media and the jet travel, etc. brought about? The world has all shrunk into one big, as it were, marketplace. And it has made a lot of economic sense for various reasons that countries and, uh, you know, corporations tap into the strengths of each other. So typically the multi-vendor uh, supply chain logistical system, you know, you source one part of the computer from one country, the hard drive from somewhere else, you know, the, the cables from somewhere else, the cabinet from somewhere else, the designing, the chips, wafers, etc., the, the circuitry, etc., you get some somewhere else and then assemble it somewhere else. So this has been the model. 
Now, that being the nature of, uh, you know, manufacturing uh, multi-vendor supply chains, it will, if you cut off one section of the world, uh, you know, because of sanctions and other things, uh, that does have an impact on the global economic system. And of course, the practical thing is, which we are, they're already talking about, is that shortage of food grains. Ukraine has been a major supplier of food grains. And Russia, of course, has been a major supplier of gas, you know, and crude, etc. cetera. Uh, so uh, the European uh, economy is going to be affected. And of course, the, 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 the investors from Europe, US, which had invested in Russia or East Europe or in third country projects, uh, they will also be impacted upon. So we're already seeing uh, fuel costs shoot up the sky and uh, this is going to have a further impact because for a country like India, of course, if the diesel and fuel costs go up, there's also an inflationary effect on, on food and other items. So uh, the, the world economy, the latest trend is not very, very uh, promising. Now, the other aspect which I'd like to add here is something else, which also we need to be mindful of, which I had hurriedly mentioned about, which is about global warming and climate change. So uh, again, around uh, the, the, the benchmark which had been stipulated was about 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius, actually 1.5. So if we were too flexible or liberal, it could be 2 degrees warming by 2030. That was the broad uh, kind of uh, benchmark agreed to in the last uh, multilateral gathering in this regard. Now, we seem to be already have you know, moving uh, into that, we seem to have already crossed that threshold. And uh, the danger, therefore, is that if this global warming continues to uh, deteriorate or move negatively as it is, we will have situations where uh, lands, agricultural land, which is uh, very, very precious, which are very precious, they will not be able to grow their crops because the crops grow at a particular optimal temperature. And even, uh, you know, there'll be a shortage of water supply. The water table is already uh, getting into danger levels. Uh, there'll be uh, natural calamities and uh, natural disasters. And of course, it will also have some dangers and risks for the human anatomy. So these are the other things which are not very promising. So what I'm trying to say is that besides their developmental needs, for the economy as such, basic infrastructure, education, food for all, you know, and uh, a modicum of comfort, uh, good uh, systems in place uh, in order that uh, the global south becomes competitive. There's another big danger, which is that they have to comply with climate change. Uh, you know, they have to they have to boost their systems. They have to put in equipment which will be less carbon, which will be carbon efficient and uh, which will be in compliance with carbon emission goals. And all this requires money and expenditure. So how is this money going to come? So the, the, the scenario is a little, uh, a little uh, negative right now, I'm afraid. And uh, the latest uh, turn of events in East Europe, you know, doesn't seem to have helped the situation coming as it is uh, in the wake of COVID. I mean, the world had barely started coming out of COVID-19. Hopefully, we were beginning to emerge from this huge crisis, existential crisis. We now seem to have landed ourselves into another mess, uh, the danger of war, when we already have such 
uh, crippled and dwindling resources. So the scenario, therefore, for the global south is, is not very promising, if that is what you're asking. Yes, Professor. So the next question would be, what do you think are some of the measures or the reforms that uh, the multilateral institutions like the World Bank or the IMF should take for the post-pandemic recovery of the global south? So, you know, one thing uh, I would uh, kind of just mention off the cuff is that uh, one of the problems which has uh, afflicted or affected us in the global south is we're not able to get the right priority and attention by, shall we say, the developed country economies, the developed country experts. I think they probably understand what we're talking about. And uh, we've had again, professors Jason Heichel, Thomas Piketty and others comment on how uh, when there were, you know, uh, measures by uh, leaders in global in the global south, uh, maybe in Africa, etc. And some of whom were ferociously critical of the remedies prescribed by the World Bank IMF. Uh, I'm afraid that it was not really appreciated because uh, according to these authors and economists, it suits uh, some of the developed economies to keep this divide because it's like a, it's not exactly colonial, but it is a kind of a neo-colonialism. Uh, there are developing countries, they have raw materials, natural resources, so, you know, these can be sourced and uh, supplied to develop country corporations and industries so they can manufacture projects, uh, products which they sell back at high value, high cost again to the developing economies because they have huge populations. So it's a kind of a cycle. Now, it doesn't suit maybe, according to Heichel and Piketty, it doesn't suit really some of these developed economies to, 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 to make sure that we also develop efficient systems. So how do we get our point of view heard? I mean, this is the challenge. This is what is also affecting us in, you know, other organizations that, that I like the WTO, the World Trade Organization, where again, the developing countries have been, you know, almost shouting it out that, uh, listen, we have, uh, we will undertake for ourselves only certain uh, common but differentiated uh, response, you know, special and differential treatment should be applied to us. We are still nascent. And, you know, you cannot object uh, in terms of uh, putting or imposing phytosanitary standards on our products because uh, the developed countries sometimes engage in, uh, you know, putting in non-tariff barriers on our goods. And this puts us again as a disadvantage. So agricultural exports from developing South countries, uh, they cannot be uh, given subsidies and help, but the developed countries, Europe, US, etc., they can give subsidies for their agri agricultural products. Now, these kind of uh, this kind of choosy selective treatment, this also happens in multilateral agencies. So what the problem is that they are not paying attention. We are not able to get priority. Similarly, in climate change, we say that we will okay uh, try and comply with carbon emissions benchmarks, etc., but you have to give us the equipment and you have to commit. It has been estimated almost $100 billion per year has to be given by developed country economies to the developing South in order that the equipment and the technology is put into place for checking in this global warming, but none of it is coming. So they don't give priority, they don't give attention to our concerns. So how do we, that's the whole question. How do we 
get attention and priority by the developed world, developing country economies. Now, this is both political and economic, you know, because uh, if you are strong economically, you also have more influence, political influence in the world. If you're strong politically, you are chancing, you have better chances of, you know, getting better opportunities. And the one thing which I think which has really harmed us is that we are not able to put up a united front. And what happens is I my diagnosis as a as a practitioner of international affairs in the last 36 years before I joined the university has been that every developing country tries to, you know, take a shortcut. And because uh, every country is to take care of its needs, you know, they have to the political leadership uh, in these countries wants to show that it has quickly engineered uh, solutions. It therefore enters into alliances with other partners abroad and uh, it tries to fix uh, fix the situation and enters into relationships and sometimes these are there are compromises so what I'm trying to say is that uh, if they were to if they were to discern and be very careful in taking up partners whether in trade whether in industry etc and make sure that it is politically correct the relationship then you know the chances of the disunity divergence amongst the developing south would be much less so i'm talking of uh, you know hot spots in the world uh, maybe maybe in the middle east maybe in africa etc where uh, you know the developing countries will take up very divergent and uh, selective positions on issues maybe on terrorism I mean, uh, what an absurd situation there is. I've, I used to handle, uh, you know, counterterrorism in one of my responsibilities and lead the dialogue in the external affairs ministry with other countries. And uh, one of the things is that we have been talking about, India has been talking about since 1993, that we should have at least a treaty, a global treaty on countering international terrorism. You know that in the United Nations, there's still not agreement on the basic concept of terrorism because they start bringing in you know, uh, they start bringing in things like Kashmir being equated with Palestine and all kinds of, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, fallacious, specious uh, arguments about self-determination. So what it leads to is disunity because of political reasons, because of cultural reasons, because of religious ideo ideological reasons. Now, the, the developed countries, uh, the way things are, exploit these differences. So if we were to unite if we were to have some kind of cohesion and resonance about our fundamental objectives, we will be able to put up a united front in the UN, in other multilateral bodies, and there will be pressure on the developed world to listen to our priorities. This means that we would have better chances of getting some of the representatives in the World Bank and the IMF. For example, the top positions of uh, you know the president of the World Bank, the managing director of the IMF, etc., are reserved for US and Europe. Now, uh, the developing countries, some of them uh, which are not even having expertise or they are not strong economically, they don't have much representation in these bodies. So in order to have uh, their say, in order to have influence in these bodies, uh, the only way is to unite and uh, to put pressure on the developed country economies if you were able to do that, you will have more attention. Maybe you can tailor the structural adjustment programs of the IMF World Bank when they want to give you loans. That is one. You will have representation in these multilateral bodies. You know, 
And three, you can also uh, customize and insist that, listen, we will not apply the conditionalities of the IMF. We will not apply the structural adjustment programs of the World Bank simply and directly as you want it, but we will do it selectively. And you know, this has been one strength which India has shown. There's been a lot of resilience and tenacity on our part. We do not allow multinationals, we don't give them a walkover uh, into our system. We insist and we fight it out and we make sure that if there is investment, this is on our terms. That's why we are not agreeing, you know, for example, right now, Tesla, the electric vehicle conglomerate, as it were, the world corporation in electric vehicles, which is asking for relief in terms of duties and taxes, etc. Well, the government is saying there should be more indigenous content. You know, we will not give in and we will still protect our indigenous electric car manufacturers. So this is the kind of thing which I'm just uh, exemplifying that uh, when a multilateral program uh, or solution is given by IMF World Bank, the developing countries often don't have the opportunity to fight back. Now, we're not able to fight back because we're not strong enough, we're not united, and we have to therefore unite. The other thing, uh, so that we get more, you know, we pressure them more, that's one. Point number two is, Today, in the developed countries, because of the way internet is there, social media is there, there are a lot of enlightened NGOs, civil society organizations and entities. I mean, there are, there are people in these societies which empathize with the global south. They feel what we are saying. They themselves are critical of the multinationals and the policies being followed by their governments. They themselves resonate with our cause. Now we in the developing world, if we were united, we can reach out to these bodies and we can try and persuade them a little bit and they will then reach out to their leaders, their governments, so that the policies of their countries are a little bit more in conformity with what we want. I mean, that's kind of tier two, tier three, you know, interfacing with these governments. If the governments are not listening directly to our cause, Maybe we can reach out to their civil society and the NGOs and we can, you know, we have enough opportunity today because of the, the, the way we are connected seamlessly in a web. So the third, of course, issue is, uh, is, is, is very, very simple. Uh, uh, these are just some principles I'm, I'm mentioning. The third is, of course, avoid war, for God's sake. I mean, we cannot get into acts of destruction and war because there is nothing positive which will result. The only people who benefit from this are the defense suppliers, that's all. It's a complete waste of resources. And you know, uh, I think uh, there has been an estimation in the last seven, eight years, the, the estimated expenditure, uh, maybe by 2021 was about 9.3 or some trillion dollars uh, of total global defense supplies expenditure by Jane's Defense Weekly. Uh, so the, <clears throat> during COVID, Jane's Defense has estimated the the, the supply uh, defense supplies may have been just in a kind of a they might have just plateaued off, but they have not tapered off. The 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 expenditure being made for being made by countries for beefing up their defense supplies has been absolutely out of control. COVID just kind of put a cap for some time. But in no way does Jane's defense expect that it will go down in the next few years. So this gives you, you know, an idea of how the human, uh, <laughs> shall we say, genius uh, on our planet right now is working and the way the leadership in the world is working. 
I mean, we are looking at negatives. We are we are just because remember one thing that uh, what you what you buy today will get obsolete tomorrow. So <laughs> a lot of the defense equipment is just infructuous expenditure in terms of pure economics. In terms of deterrence, in terms of defense, it's important. I mean, India itself today, we are one of the biggest, maybe we the fifth or sixth largest, you know, shopper of defense supplies in the world uh, because of our very complex geopolitical situation. So countries do, maybe in the Middle East, Israel, for example, these are countries, you know, the US, etc. Very of the European countries, they are also spending a lot. The US is one of the biggest, of course. <coughs> this is unavoidable, perhaps inevitable, but of the way the geopolitics runs in the world but basically this expenditure is not going to be economically productive it is just a kind of a deterrent and if your if your equipment if your supply gets obsolete well it is infructuous isn't it this very expenditure could be used for vaccines it could be used for infrastructure it could be used for something which i believe that's the that's the other issue i'd like to emphasize as as someone who is already engaging in this in the field of higher education i think skilling up the populations making them globally competitive uh, in south in the southern countries you know today the world is interconnected the world is interdependent economies are interdependent and people outside your own country may be more uh, skilled than you and they've been more informed about your job requirements than you because they have read about it in the net. They are they have having they are having enough resources, enough leisure and luxury of time and everything. So they may have, you know, literally analyzed and studied some of the best best resources uh, which are available. So they have de developed a master a mastery and expertise on your skills. What I'm trying to say is that unlike earlier times when the economy was based only on local, national, domestic skills, today you are competing with the whole wide world. So you have to be globally competitive in every profession, in any case, because uh, no economy can be an island to itself today. Every country, every economy is interconnected with others. If you have to sail long in this whole system of global economy as it is interconnected economy, you have to be global in your perspective. You have to be internationally compliant in terms of manufacturing, in terms of benchmarks, etc. Therefore, your expertise, your skills have to be world class, state of the art. Now, this human resource infrastructure is therefore, I think, extremely critical. You can have physical uh, facilities, you can have bridges, you can have other physical infrastructure, but if you don't know how to handle uh, this fine physical infrastructure like I always say in class if you were to have you know unskilled laborers in Wall Street what will be what will they do in Wall Street I mean they'll just probably have picnics they won't know how to handle you know the the exchange and the stocks uh, computer systems and the servers in Wall Street and Wall Street is controlling a very very significant supply of the world's you know investment uh, streams so uh, unless you have globally skilled populations in the South countries, in case you don't have enough education, in case you don't have enough, you know, polytechnics and other skills which are available to these populations, uh, they will not be able to keep pace with the world economic uh, processes. They will not be able to keep, play, keep pace with the competition. 
we will in the global south therefore remain in a state of in a state of ignorance we will be overwhelmed by the absolute knowledge based economies and we will keep supplying you know resources natural resources etc to big corporations which will keep setting up their high rates adding value we will buy from them and this divide which is there therefore may not really reduce so in order to take care of this uh, besides making sure that the loans we get we should not they should not reduce us into a state of permanent indebtedness we should take loans on our own terms for doing that we should have the capacity to fight back and for that we need influence we need unity amongst the global south so that we can pressure the northern economists that this is the way we want we must be sensitive when we enter into relationships with other countries we in the south in fact should deal more within each other there should be more intra-south trade than just dealing with the northern economies some of us have more innovation more strengths they can supply locally within the southern countries maybe we can buy the same thing from another southern neighbor at a cheaper price than necessarily buying it from a foreign country or a foreign corporation so this kind of uh, challenge this kind of trend will help us of course we must at the end of the day as i said develop the strength within our own economic systems we must make our people globally competitive we must give them skills education and uh, we must of course separately at the multilateral level try and make this world a more fair equitable and stable place so that there are less wars there's more commitment by the developed countries on sharing of resources uh, making us uh, better prepare for climate change and they make you know uh, the systems which are there which are right now as thomas piketty and jason heichel are saying they are programmed to perpetuate a divide they are programmed to create this economic divide while the systems are reviewed critically and certain precautions and checks and balances are put into place which makes sure that the relationship between the developing uh, countries the global south and the northern economies is not that of the exploited and the exploiter we should make sure that the relationship is healthy uh, it is mutually you know engaging and profitable more equitable otherwise it'll just be a situation where there's a new colonialism the old the old colonies have gone the colonial system has been condemned and given up but a new colonialism colonialism threatens to overtake us where where the global south will keep supplying uh, you know as one of the minor contributors to the supply chain of the world and we will not be able to take care of our people we will not be able to get prosperous and the situation in fact could worsen into 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 right now it may be economic deprivation tomorrow it could also create hunger and this is something which you know bodies like the Oxfam international etc are cautioning about that there are dangers of also hunger and famine taking over and it is no secret that some of our unfortunate uh, you know populations in Africa etc how they are uh, acutely short of basic nutritional needs so uh, you know the other uh, absurd uh, remark uh, the other absurd thing is and I'll just make that last remark is that 
<laughs> the World Bank and some of these bodies have even, uh, which has been criticized by Jason Heichel, for example, are saying that, you know, in their definition of uh, hunger, in order to be considered hungry, a person really should be hungry for at least 12 months, for a period of 12 months. So, uh, which means again, that his nutritional intake should be about 2000 calories per day. And if he doesn't get that, then only if he is not able to uh, get that for one year continuously, 12 months, he will be uh, considered as hungry. But if he is having nutrition or power, you know, calories for 11 months, uh, for, for, for 11 months, uh, if he's hungry for 11 months and one month he gets uh, calories, then he's not hungry. Now, this is a kind of an absurd situation. Again, people in developing countries are not doing desk jobs. They are doing, you know, physical jobs like uh, running a rickshaw or doing casual manual labor. They require three to 4,000 calories. So these are these, this is that duplicity and wrong, uh, you know, criteria which they have given. So uh, I think uh, we have to shake up, uh, you know, things and make sure that there is more attention paid by the northern economies, because otherwise uh, things don't seem to be moving in the right direction. And uh, the crisis, I think, is only worsening because of the way things are headed and particularly with what is happening now, the war which has just, uh, you know, broken out in Eastern Europe. Well, that is uh, making things even more serious and challenging so it's time to take stock time to review time to get together and uh, make sure that our cause which is very genuine which is very reasonable is taken care of because as i say sometimes to my students that if this things if these things are not checked at some point if these trends are not checked and there are swathes of territory and population huge communities maybe in africa and other countries which are below the poverty line, which are not having enough food to eat, maybe the youngsters, the young youth populations will lose patience. And if they lose patience and they get into disturbances, they might like to change systems uh, a little more, you know, strongly and perhaps even violently, which means there'll be upheaval, which means that there'll be disturbance and challenge of the world order. So that could even cause political problems in the governance systems of the world. And I think, that is an existential issue, not only for us, but also for our posterity and children to come. So those are my comments, I think, which I would like to sum up uh, about the Global South and some of the prospects, uh, which, as I say, at this point, don't seem very promising. Thank you. Okay, yes. Thank you so much, Professor, for being with us today. It was so, so nice listening to your thoughts. It really gave us a deeper understanding about the future of the Global South, Professor. Any Thank final you. thoughts or words, Professor, from your side? Uh, I would just say that uh, people, you know, who are in the younger sections, younger echelons like yourself, I think uh, the, the one message which I can see clearly emerging from the writings and critiques of the experts which we are reading about on the global economy, global systems today, and not only that, it's not just these people, their theoretical analysis. What we see is actually unfolding today in the world marketplace, in the UN, in the world, uh, as it were, political system, that things are not exactly what they seem to be. Therefore, uh, when we are being told, uh, we are being given certain narratives by you know, the 
people in the developed economies, we have to be on alert. We have to look at things critically. And uh, we will have to continue to look out for ourselves, each country for itself. Uh, we will, of course, because we are connected, interdependent, have to have partnerships. There is no way today that we can sail it out on our own. We are in now in an era and in a, in a period of time, we have no choice but to keep in sync with other fellow countries, with also the developed world. I think no extreme position is correct. We cannot reverse the clock back. We can't set the time. We can't set time back, uh, the time back and hearken back maybe as Jason Heichel says to the 15th century and that time when in fact China and India commanded 65% of the world's GDP. I mean, that was the kind of situation. It's all, that is now an era which has passed. So we have to uh, kind of uh, recapture our position in the world. Uh, we have to command more uh, influence in the world and there is no shortcut because too much water has flown past the bridges. Now, it's also that uh, in the last three, 400 years, I think uh, the human civilization has evolved politically, socially, civilizationally. We are now in multilateral mode of engagement. We are now in, uh, in a global marketplace. We cannot avoid but taking you know, stock of situations as a whole, as, as a whole system, which means that multilateralism is extremely important. I mean, carbon emissions, uh, the impoverishment, uh, impoverished conditions in certain part of the world, hunger, famine, etc., is it's to be taken stock of because of the interdependence on the world, which means that you in the younger population have to be very, very, you know, globally oriented, have to equip yourself with uh, 360 degree perspectives, have to inform yourself about current uh, international situations and like I said have to be uh, you know uh, compliant with global skills I mean your 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 preparedness to withstand the avalanche to withstand the competition of the global economy should be absolutely uh, there because only then will you be able to you know impress only, the, only then will you be able to sit in these multilateral gatherings. You could be a representative of your corporation. You could be a big senior management representative in your, in your company. You could be a consultant. You could be part of the uh, government, a diplomat. Wherever you are, you will have to make sure that your information is supported by good analysis and that you are globally skilled. And uh, then if all people in the developing world were to get that kind of orientation if we are fortunate and we are able to get that skill i think we there has been injustice then we have to rectify it if the system is not working out well we have to make sure that our complaint and grievances are registered and not only are they registered but they are addressed and in order to do that we have to fight it out. We'll have to show some tenacity and we'll also have to show some unity within our within our slot. And unless we do that, uh, you know, it, a weaker, a weaker segment in the global 
uh, play of things well, we will not get attention. So I'll just like to mention that, uh, therefore, uh, a lot of challenges are there, uh, especially for young people like yourself, like, like yourselves. Uh, things are not oriented in the best possible direction. COVID has been negative and depressing. Jobs are being taken away. Markets are downsizing. Economies are downsizing. War has been breaking out. State systems are, you know, the, the structured systems are not working out the way they should. Well, then it's time to hit the pause button and reformat. And reformatting can be done only if we take complete stock of things and uh, have a benign and uh, very, very detailed analysis. And you can connect with like-minded younger populations all over the world. I mean, you know, you are at free, you are at complete freedom to connect with like-minded people in other societies, in the North maybe, and bring more attention on our cause. And, uh, you know, whether it leads to more healthy relationships, whether it leads to better alignments, whether it leads to more economic opportunities, whether it just gives you better insights or whether it just gives you a higher profile, I don't know. But somehow, I think it will help to dilute some of these challenges. And if nothing else, it will put you in a better mood and make you more optimistic. And uh, there's too much of pessimism and negativity. Maybe if someone sympathizes and empathizes with your lot, maybe there are friends who are abroad who are prepared to listen to what we have to say. Maybe they'll put you in a better mood. And being in a good mood is all that is all about. You know, if you're in good spirits, you will fight it out. And like you, many others should do that. And uh, let this message go. Let people share and let people realize one thing. At the end of the day, we are here on this planet for a limited time span. You know, none of us, if we are lucky, can hit it beyond 100. I mean, if we are very, very lucky. Most of us may have to go uh, much earlier. There is enough disease, enough challenge, enough deprivation. Now, we have to realize, you know, that the way uh, things are programmed right now, the materialism, this senseless obsession with power, with materialism is perhaps not the best way. I think a little bit of blend between our philosophy, our spirituality, which tells us that there is something called doing it right, you know, and there is always a cause and effect, that there is accountability to the nature, to mother nature, to the world, and there's a blend, therefore, between our lineage, our philosophy, our spirituality, and the aspiration of materialistic acquisition and power. If there is a good blend between that, between these two, and you know, I'll just mention that this is happening. Our Indians who go abroad, uh, you know, they, they carry a little India, whether they are in Japan, whether they, I've seen these, uh, whether they're in America or in Europe, and that's why they are doing so well. So my advice, therefore, to you youngsters is, that don't lose heart, have faith in your roots, take nourishment from our great legacy, our seers and the wonderful philosophy that we have given, you know, and having taken, you know, nourishment from that, keep your mind open, keep the windows open, keep the fresh air coming, do acquire technology and innovation, mix it with technology innovation, upgrade our systems and develop the tenacity to fight back. Then you will be soldiers of the world and you will be leaders of the world. Let's rephrase it. You'll be leaders of the world. You'll be leaders in industry. You'll be leaders in as professional, whether as environmentalists, economists, lawyers, consultants, whatever you do will be world-class. And when there is excellence and world-class systems, everybody takes sits up and takes notice. So that is what I think we are looking forward in the Jindal uh, Global University to preparing world-class populations and world-qualified students. 
and as one of the teachers and instructors there instructors there instructors there is my privilege and uh, you know uh, shall we say honor to lead you into this kind of lead you towards these horizons so with those words uh, let me just give you uh, all the best and best wishes for your uh, group and this wonderful initiative which you are taking in bringing uh, the knowledge about uh, you know what are the possibilities of uh, remedying some of the fault lines uh, in the in the world economy in the world political setup so that uh, the people in the global south are actually able to get out of this labyrinth and uh, join the prosperous community of nations uh, all the best and thank you very much for giving me this opportunity